It was at Men's Fellowship on Monday evening, and we had Tim Fevens there, and he shared a bit of his testimony of, of his life and the ups and the downs and the things that the Lord has brought him through. And, and since Tim shared this publicly at Men's Fellowship and his mom Facebook-lived it to the world, I didn't figure he'd care if I shared this story here this morning. I thought about asking him, but then I thought, nah, he'd be okay with it. There you go. He's fine. And so the story went something like this. Tim shared with us that, that one day, many, many years ago, when he was so much younger than he is now, a teenager just, he was going on a, a, a swimming trip with, with a group of guys, guys from Evangel Assembly here. And actually, he threw out their names. I won't out them, just Tim. Some of them aren't, aren't with us here anymore. They've moved on to other places and other things. And so they were going down a trail, and they were heading toward a lake or a river or a stream or something that had moving water. And then when they got there, all the people that were really good at swimming and planned to go swimming jumped in, and they were floating around, and they were having a great time. Now, here's the thing that Tim led in on a men's fellowship. Tim didn't quite know how to swim. And, and so I'll make this part up. Feeling a little left out on the shore, Tim didn't say this, but he decided he wanted to get in with the guys in this moving water place. And so he thought that this rope tied to a tree would be a good anchor for him to hold on to as he went out into the water. And if he got in trouble, just yank on the rope and it would bring him back to shore. But you see, the thing is, once he got out there, there was such a strong undertow, it sucked him under the water and the rope was useless. And there he was, not knowing how to swim and caught up in the undertow of of a fast-moving water. And that's when the story took a turn. And so if you were at Men's Fellowship, you know what happened. There were some other folks on the trail. And this is just sort of the way God provides. That was the point of Tim's story then. There were some other folks on the trail that just felt like they needed to turn around and go back. And when they did, they were able to rescue Tim from the water. And, and I thought that was a fascinating story. I'll tell you why in a minute. But what was even better was that afterwards his mom, Pat, told me that she had never heard that story before. And I thought that was even better than the story itself. The things we never tell our parents. Not you guys. I'm sure it was just Tim. But I tell you that story this morning because of this. I think there's times in our life when we aspire to do things. We aspire to do something. But then there's this other voice in our mind that whispers in our ear, No, you don't have what it takes. I think most people in life, you and I, we want to do something of significance with the time that we have here. We want to make a difference, and we want to do that in some way. Maybe that's with our family. Maybe that's in a particular profession. Maybe that's with a social cause. But we want to make an impact. We want to step out and make a positive change in some area of life and bring others with us. But then we wake up in the morning, and when we're just laying there in bed looking around, thinking of all our grand dreams and aspirations, sometimes we shy away from the courage we might have had the night before. And we were talking about how we were going to take over and make a difference, and we shy away from our boldness. We're going to read in a moment in First Timothy that the Apostle Paul was talking with a young man named, Tim- named Timothy, and they were wrestling with this question. Do I have what it takes to be a leader in my local assembly? And they throw out some words, overseer, elder, deacon. 
And some of you this morning would say, I never want to function in any of those particular roles. Some of you have said that to me, and that's okay. Because not everyone will function in these particular roles in the local church. Because in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that we are built up when every part of the body plays its part. Not all parts of the body are feet. Can you imagine if we were all feet? You'd run around everywhere. I think kids do that. Kids must be all feet. They run, or their feet are developing before anything else. You'd run around everywhere but have no idea where you were going and no purpose. And if we were all mouth or all ear or, no, the body needs all of its parts. But here's the thing this morning when we read this passage in 1 Timothy. The characteristics of overseers and elders and deacons, and I'll explain what those are in a moment in case that's a little fuzzy. But all of these characteristics are things that the Word of God affirms that people who live a journey with Christ ought to exemplify anyhow. It's just that these overseers and elders and deacons ought to lead the charge and ought to show us the way by living that out as examples in their lives. And so even this morning, if you never aspire to lead or leave your mark in the local assembly in this way, as an overseer, a deacon, or an elder, and maybe if you you never have the opportunity to do that, we can still learn from this portion of Scripture because all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. And moreover, at some points in our life, it's very likely we will be called upon to exercise wise discernment in who ought to be called up to positions of leadership, overseers and deacons and elders. And so this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, we're going to read this together. It says this, Here's a trustworthy saying, If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Otherwise, he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Verse 8, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve in this way. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that your word reminds us that all scripture is useful 
for teaching and for guidance and for understanding, as you have said. So I just pray as we look at this aspect of your word this morning, that all of us will be edified. All of us will be built up. All of us will be encouraged through your word this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen. And so in this particular passage, and in the closely related passage you can find in the book of Titus, chapter 1, there's three different positions in in this one and in Titus, when you group them all together, three different positions or offices in the local church that are described. The office or the position of overseer, the office or position of elder, and the office and position of deacon. And there's considerable overlap in in the qualifications of all of these positions. And in Titus, in fact, there's so much overlap that it appears that elder and overseer might even mean the same thing at some points in Titus's conversation. Now, it is tough to nail down the precise way that these offices functioned in the early church because there was just so much expression of church Years ago in the early church, there were, there were gatherings that met in homes, and, and they were called a piece of the local church. There were churches that were affiliated with a particular town and a particular region, and there were people that were overseeing, overseeing regions, people overseeing some small homes. But the consensus is this. An overseer, originally translated into English as bishop, but that title has been given other names and other baggage throughout church history. And so overseer is the most common translation for evangelical Christians now. But overseers watch over a group of churches or a local church. An example of an overseer in our context might be the pastor of a local church or a district official who oversees many churches and provides guidance and leadership to credential holders. And that's an overseer. Now an elder, these were the ones generally who were older in the community. Now, I got a little bit of feedback last Sunday night about discussing old people. They said that's not the correct term. It's older people. And once I called them seasoned individuals, and someone thought I was preparing them for a barbecue. And so, I will use my new wisdom that I gained last Sunday evening. And I will tell you that elders were the older ones in the community. And generally, because of how their life had been lived over many years, they earned the opportunity for the local church to listen to them and to respect them because of the way that they had lived their life. And we read in the book of Acts, chapter 11 and chapter 15, that it seems that in many cases, these group of elders, as older, wise people, were given positions of influence and offices of leadership in the early church. And then we have the word deacon. 
Deacon means servant. And in the book of Acts, we see that deacons were selected and given the responsibility of caring for practical needs of people, social service kinds of ministries. There was a debate that some of the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And then the church leadership gathered together and said, let's appoint deacons to take care of this so no one gets left behind, but so that the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers can focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. And so here at Evangel Assembly, and as the case with pretty much all of our PAOC, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada churches, we sort of have melded two offices, the office of elder and deacon, into one position that we, we call the church board member. We call our board the board of deacons, and our board functions as deacons in many ways. We have one board member who oversees and manages the needs at Sankey Manor, our apartment complex across the parking lot. And so there are those very practical service details. But our board functions also as elders. They make wise decisions, oversee finances, administrate things in the local church. And this is the case in pretty much all of our Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada churches. And so, for overseers, for elders, and for deacons, the Apostle Paul has given Timothy this guidance in what they ought to be. And it's important to note here that this list of qualifications for overseers and deacons and and elders in Titus, this list includes Character items, first and foremost, before gifts or skills. Which is interesting because to be an overseer, to aspire to an elder, to be a deacon, there's maturity of character. And this comes before gifts or abilities. In fact, the only particular skill mentioned in this list of qualifications is the ability to teach. And even though that is primarily the job of the overseer, deacons and elders can also be prepared, according to these qualifications, to assume that responsibility too, as is necessary. Now, it's important not to mistake that gifts and skills are unimportant, because absolutely not. We need skill when we teach. We need wisdom and skill when we oversee finances. But first and foremost, the Apostle Paul says to young Timothy, we must find good character. Matt Tapley is a PAOC credential holder in Western Ontario. He's the lead pastor of Lake Mount Worship Center in Grimsby, Ontario. And he says this. He says, gifts are cheap and easy to come by. But character is far more difficult to find. Now we joke around with Matt Tapley sometimes, and we tell him that's nice in the church of his size with about 25 worship leaders to say that gifts are cheap and easy. But the truth behind that is that behind gifting must come character or else the whole thing may come down. And Paul sets this up in verse 2. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, he says, The overseer, and he repeats this for deacons and Titus, for elders, the overseer must be above reproach. What does that mean? 
The overseer must be above reproach. Well, when you look into other translations of Scripture, it's translated this way also. The overseer, the deacon, or the elder must be blameless. Now, here's a truth statement for you this morning. Some of you may know this from experience, but here's a truth statement. If you exercise any level of leadership in any capacity, you will be blamed for something. That's the truth. It's just the way it is, and we have to roll with that. Now, sometimes if you have exceptional tact and skill, you can last a quite a long time without being blamed for something. When I was an associate pastor, for a while, the office staff joked that I was the recipient of the nicest guy in the office award. That was nice. I, I took that, and I, you know, I, I took pride in that. I was the nicest guy in the office of all the pastors on staff and, and all the volunteer team and that sort of thing. I was the nicest guy in the office. I won't ask Pastor Aaron or Kathy if I still have that reward for Evangel. They can tell you another time. But let me tell you this. Even though for a while they referred to me as the nicest guy in the office, eventually over time, and I pastored in one location for 10 years as an associate, the duties that leaders have to carry out, the problems that leaders have to step in and solve, the visions that they have to cast by being leaders, eventually someone's going to blame you for something. I mean, just look at our government. Has there been one that hasn't been blamed for something along the way? Some have made it easier to attract blame than others. But mark my words, to be in leadership is to be blamed for something. And so what does it mean to be blameless then? It means this. To be blameless or to be above reproach means that the things that you are blamed for should not be found to be true. Unless, of course, you were blamed like Jesus for things that you intended to do. And in this way, the blame comes from doing the right things and not the wrong things. And so to be blameless means that even though you will be blamed for doing wrong things, for having wrong motivations, for pursuing things dishonestly, the allegation should be apparent to all that it's not true. And with this in mind, Paul outlined six attributes that would make an overseer blameless. And he reiterates these with deacons and Titus for elders also. And the first one is this. In, in chapter 3, verse 2, the overseer must be above reproach or blameless. And the first of these six character attributes that would make one blameless is to be the husband of one wife, as some translations have it. Now, this particular statement has created the most conversation amongst Bible translators and in commentaries and in local churches. And it's repeated again for deacons later on in this chapter, and it's repeated for elders and Timothy as well. And in fact, this is the only time in Scripture that marriage and leadership qualifications overlap. And so understanding what is meant here is of utmost importance, especially for us at Evangel Assembly, given everything we have been discussing. And so Timothy says this, sorry, Paul says this to Timothy. If you have the New American Standard Bible or a King James Bible, husband of one wife. The New International Version has updated its rendering to be faithful to his wife. 
Young's literal translation, which is one that simply translates the Greek word for word and lets you figure out what it means, says this, one wife, a husband. The message by Eugene Peterson, a paraphrase, says committed to his wife. And the RSV and the NRSV say this, married only once with a footnote that says husband of one wife. And so I can think you can see here that the different English translations of scripture that we have don't all tell us the exact same thing. And so what we know here is to say with any degree of certainty what Paul was talking about requires research, reading, and a whole heap of illumination from the Holy Spirit. Now, based on the, the, the scripture that we have and the various translations that some of us follow and read, to be above reproach or to be blameless in our marriage, we must be one of a number of things. Maybe married to one woman only. It's speaking against polygamy, perhaps, some have said. Or maybe Paul is saying here that you must be married to exercise leadership, ruling out people who are not married and exercising leadership. Or others have said it prohibits remarriage. But in what cases? After the death of a spouse? What about after a divorce? Reaching more into the passage, some people have said that men only should be in these roles because it's husband of one wife. But we do understand that Paul says brothers quite often when he means brothers and sisters. And still others have said this passage, husband of one wife, means being faithful to your wife in your marriage. And so let's talk about some of these options for a moment When we talk about Paul making a statement against polygamy, well, we would have to assume that this would be something that is rampant in his culture that he would be speaking against. And the vast majority of commentaries and historical data that we have show that by the time the Apostle Paul came around, monogamy was the general accepted norm in Roman society. And so polygamy was not that big of a deal, especially not to the point where Paul would have needed to write something against polygamy. And so it's unlikely that that's what Paul was getting at here. And of course, we, secondly, we've said, you know, one of the ways that we have interpreted this is that the leader, the overseer, the elder, the deacon must be married. Now, the interesting thing is that celibacy or being unmarried is celebrated for its benefits in Paul's other letters in 1 Corinthians. And so it would be inconsistent for him to celebrate the benefits of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, yet exclude those who are single from leadership. In fact, there's very little evidence to show that Paul himself was married at the time of this writing. Some suggest he hasn't been married ever, and others suggest he had a wife and she has passed away. Moreover, Timothy, who he's writing to, we know is a young man who is giving oversight to local churches, and there is no indication that he is married. Now, some, some denominations, not in our local area, some denominations, Baptist denominations, still do follow in this tradition, and they refuse to ordain or place in ministry any unmarried persons. But as we dig into that, I think that's as much as a reaction against the Roman Catholic necessity to be single and the Protestant insistence that we will not be single than anything else we read into the Word of God. 
And then we come, of course, to the interpretation favored by most conservative evangelicals, including Pentecostals through the 1900s. A prohibition of remarriage. A deacon, an overseer, an elder must not be divorced and remarried lest he become the husband of two or more wives, the logic states. Now when we read Paul's letter, we see that remarriage was permissible in Paul's day in in some cases. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, just two chapters later, he encourages Timothy to tell the young women to remarry. Older widows would be cared for by the local church, but younger ones were given the encouragement to remarry if they so choose so that they wouldn't be a burden on to the local church. And Paul also speaks in 1 Corinthians 7 about remarriage if an unbelieving spouse were to leave. He makes this statement, you are no longer bound. Now we've gotten around this as conservative evangelical Christians by stating that Approved remarriages by us would not bump up your wife count. You could still, in fact, be the husband of one wife. But in doing that, we're bringing a whole complicated layer of understanding to three simple Greek words that even those who translate Scripture have difficulty agreeing upon. And so to interpret this passage as the RSV and NRSV, Revised Standard Version and New Revised Standard do, by stating that it means you must be married only once, would then contradict other things Paul says are permissible. And if you were to argue that remarriage, even in these situations, makes a person no longer blameless, we'd really have to ask, what are they being blamed for when Paul says they are no longer bound? And so to make this particular passage about divorce and remarriage in a person's past means that we're not just looking for a blameless person in the present, we're also digging up their past. And if we're digging up the past for everyone, we ought to then examine all the characteristics of blamelessness from 1 Timothy. Paul also says that an overseer, an elder, a deacon is not to be given to drunkenness. That is an aspect of being blameless. And that is true and right. And so if we're considering past and past behaviors and past sins, then we'd have to ask if any of our candidates had a past where they had been given to drunkenness. And if they had, we'd have to disqualify them. And the testimony of some of our deacon states that from years past, they were given to drunkenness. But that day is over. They've started a fresh path with Christ, and they have a track record to demonstrate this. Paul also says that an overseer, a deacon, an elder ought not be violent or quarrelsome. This is also an aspect of being blameless. But again, if we're considering past actions and past behaviors, we'd have to ask all of our candidates if there was indeed a past that include violence. Reputation with outsiders. Reputation in the community. That's important for the leaders of a local church to have a good reputation in their local community. But once again, so the testimony of some people that have even served here at Evangel Assembly have stated this, that in the past, their reputation was not great. There were police involved. There's been jail time served. But that day is over. They've started a fresh path with Christ. 
They have a track record to demonstrate this. They now live a blameless life, and they have functioned well as leaders to chart a path forward. And the same must be said about these three small Greek words we interpret husband of one wife in some capacities. In fact, I think the NIV is on to something when they say here that a deacon, an overseer, an elder must be faithful to his wife at the present moment. This does not exclude from leadership the possibility of deacons whose testimony says, for example, maybe some of the testimony says, I was not always faithful to my spouse. Maybe the testimony says, I didn't pursue restoration and reconciliation as much as I should have. Maybe the testimony says, I walked out, as hard as that would be to admit. Maybe the testimony says, someone walked out on me. But folks, when that day is over, when people have picked up the pieces and started fresh with Christ, and when they have a track record to demonstrate this, I believe they are living blameless before the Lord, and they should not be prevented from holding any position in a local church. Sometimes, conservative evangelical Christians, we assume that repentance from divorce and remarriage must look like this, telling your current spouse that you no longer love them. Some assume that repentance from divorce and remarriage involves leaving a current marriage to rekindle a relationship with the first spouse. And the Apostle Paul never states this. And in his lengthy discussion in 1 Corinthians 7, he certainly has the opportunity to do so. But what he does say this in 1 Corinthians 7.20, each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Would it be more redemptive and more God-honoring after getting right with God to break a current marriage vow, to attempt to rekindle a relationship from the past that may not even be salvageable any longer? Perhaps a former spouse is even remarried also, and then it would be breaking a current bond to try and break another bond to try and rekindle something from the past. Or is it more redemptive and God-honoring to after getting right with God living faithfully and honorably and blamelessly in your current marriage, stating that you never again desire to walk that path of divorce because we know that at all costs we want to protect what God has brought together. I think the second option is more redemptive and more God-honoring. And we see Jesus behaving like this when he says to the woman caught in adultery, Go and sin no more. Even in the Old Testament day when the punishment for that was death by stoning, not that we live under the law any longer, but Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. I ask Pastor Aaron to come back. Ultimately, folks, this morning... What this passage is about for you and I is this. It should be the goal and the desire of all Christ followers to live a life that is blameless. Not just those that we select for local church leadership. It's not just that the overseer or the pastor 
the elders, the deacons, the board, they ought to be blameless, but, but I have some latitude with that. Not at all. Everyone that walks with Christ ought to endeavor to be blameless. But those who are leaders in the local church ought to be an example of what that means. They ought to be an example charting a path forward for us to follow. And all Christ's followers should indeed take steps toward blamelessness. But as I said at the beginning, sometimes on the road to making a difference with our life, sometimes on the road to wanting to leave a legacy, sometimes on the road to wanting to do great things, aspiring to great things, we struggle with doubts, we struggle with fears, we struggle with whether or not God can actually even use me. Maybe it's something about our present that we say, I don't know, this, this, this thing, this present struggle, it disqualifies me. Maybe it's something in your past. Maybe you say, yes, I desire to do great things. I desire to follow Christ, but, but there's a limit. There's a wall I come up against. It's just something in my past. The first time I ever led a foundations class, not at this church, at another local church, there was a young woman who attended the class. And she had been in the local church a long time, longer than I had been there. And as we began discussing the foundational elements of faith in Christ, she said, no, I've, I've never been baptized in water No, I've never pursued church membership. Yeah, I am a Christ follower. I confessed faith in Christ. And then as we began to talk more and to discuss this, there was hesitation there. There was hesitation about moving forward. And we didn't, I didn't understand why, but we were just gracious and patient and gentle and moving forward. And then, then a couple stood up in foundations and shared their story. And they said it this way. They said, you know what? When we were young, we did things the backwards way. When we were 15, we ran away. This couple said we ran away, moved to British Columbia, had our children. Then we came back home and got married. And then we got right with the Lord. And we've been walking with God since then. And after that testimony, this young woman came to me and said, I think I'm ready to get baptized now. And I said, well, why is that? She said, well, because there's been something I've never told anyone. There's been something I've never told anyone at all in this local church. I was afraid to. I thought I was the only one. She said, when you, when you look back to when I got married, and when you look back to when my oldest son was born, the dates don't match up very well, if you know what I mean, she said. And I just thought I could never move forward because of that. I just thought I was the only one. I just thought that was, that was holding me back. And I, I didn't dare to step forward because I thought I'd get found out. And that moment when someone else said, I've been there. But I was able to pick up the pieces. And I was able to move on. 
and live a life of honoring God from that moment on, that was release for her. That was liberating for her. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we close. Folks, the past is gone. It is 2020. The past is gone. And a desire to never go back to that past, whatever your past may look like, a desire to never go back there, coupled with the Holy Spirit's help to achieve that, that is the definition of repentance. That by God's help, I will not open that door and go back there again. But here's the other thing. Sometimes when we come to gatherings like this, you might say, but pastor, my present life, my present life is less than blameless. Maybe as we read through this list of what it means to be blameless, you've said there's, there's a snag for me in that list right now. It's not past, it's current. It's right now. And this is what I want to say to you this morning. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to remain there. You can pick up the pieces. You can walk in wholeness. And in a month from now, in six months from now, in a year from now, you can look back and say, I have charted a path that is blameless for the last year, for the last month, for the last six months. I have charted a path that is above reproach. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you. The first step to that is just confessing faith in Jesus Christ if you've not ever done that. Confessing faith in Jesus Christ makes a spiritual change within you. It allows the Holy Spirit to begin to nurture you and empower you to live blamelessly from this moment onward. And second, if you're already walking with Christ... I want to invite you on a journey to greater freedom and greater blamelessness. Starting next Sunday and leading up until Easter, there's a new series I'll be preaching. And it's going to be called Freedom in Christ. Sometimes we struggle with destructive habits that we just can't shake no matter how hard we try. Sometimes we struggle with devastating voices in our mind that defeat us every day and tear us down and cause us to push away every good thing someone says about us. Sometimes there are things that we avoid because the anxiety, the fear, and the depression overwhelm us and we can't imagine facing that. Sometimes there's other things that have held us back and try your hardest You've not overcome. Well, we're going to talk about a different approach. Because the New Testament tells us that we're not on our own. And the New Testament tells us that trying hard enough means we're always going to fail. But when we bring Jesus Christ into the battle, when we bring Ephesians 6 into the battle, the armor of God when we begin to fight back on that front, the word of God gives us the path to freedom in Christ. And so I invite you next week, we're going to launch into that new series 
as we approach the next month and a half toward what is the most defining central element of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in that. We're going to be talking about freedom in Christ and on Easter Sunday culminating with hope because the Apostle Paul says hope does not fail.